in part 19. We're walking through heroes of the faith in the book of Acts. So we're learning as we go chapter by chapter that this book, the book of Acts, is filled with normal people like you and me that just God used in extraordinary ways. And we're learning that he wants to do that today. He wants to use you. He wants to use me in extraordinary ways. And when we enter into that extraordinary way through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's called a hero of the faith. Now, I want to begin this morning by sharing with you a cartoon. We're going to show it to you in a moment. And I share this with you because I think this cartoon depicts or captures the way many of us feel when it comes to an opportunity given to share about Jesus, especially publicly. Speaking publicly is like the number one most feared thing to do for the average person. Speaking publicly about your faith is like doubly, you know, potentially fearful. So check out this little cartoon. Hello, I'm Lamar Lundy. I'm a volunteer for the prison ministry, here to witness to you fellows. I'm kind of new. I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna throw up. <laughs> and I think this is like how some of us feel when we're given an opportunity to go in and share the gospel. And we feel like we're just gonna throw up. Given an opportunity to maybe share at your Christmas company party or whatever. You're the Christian. What are you going to share in that moment? And you're just all freaking out on the inside. You know, is it possible to reduce the fear associated with sharing about Jesus when you're given the opportunity? Is it possible to eliminate it? Is it possible to actually turn the fear into excitement? And if so, what does that look like? Well, today we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. We're going to take a trip all the way to Athens, and we're going to see how he interacts with a group of unbelievers. And we're going to learn some incredible principles from his life. Here's our hero of the faith trait this morning. One of the most heroic things you can do is to provide, is to give, a helpful explanation for your faith to an unbeliever when asked. Just a helpful explanation. That is heroic. Anytime you give to someone who doesn't know Jesus a helpful explanation about your faith, that is absolutely heroic. It's not heroic if you cave, if you give in, if you freak out and you're like you don't open your voice. But it is heroic when the Holy Spirit stretches you and actually you open your voice and you share. It doesn't have to be a lot. It can be just a little, something helpful for that person who doesn't know Christ. Now watch this, at some point in your life, you are gonna, if you're living your life as a Christian, like Jesus, believe me, it's just gonna be a matter of time until you're given the opportunity to give a word about your faith. It's not a matter of when, of if it will happen, it's just a matter of when. It's gonna happen. Now, Peter expressed it this way. He said, always be prepared to give an answer. Would you underline that? Always be prepared to give an answer. Wow. To everyone who asks you. In other words, the assumption is, as you go through life as a Christian, you're going to be asked about your faith because your faith is so genuine. People see it. And that you would give a reason for the hope that you have. 
But then look at do this with gentleness and respect. Would you underline do this with gentleness and respect? That's the attitude that we share. Now, the hero of the faith is not someone who leads multitudes like Billy Graham to Christ. That's, that's not necessarily a hero of the faith. A hero of the faith is just someone. When the Holy Spirit opens the door, you walk through it and you provide something helpful for that person who's asking something spiritual because they see your life and your life is different. Mm. A hero of the faith is someone who can provide a very clear, a thoughtful answer, a reason for the hope that you have. And this is called apologetics. From the Greek word apologia, apo, from, and then logia, logic. It's the defense of your faith based on logic or reason or truth. And if you can provide a simple answer, the most brilliant people can provide a simple answer for a non-Christian that like resonates and, and it's like, wow, that makes sense. That is heroic when you do that. Now, I'd like you to just talk honestly though about this a little bit. What are some of the biggest fears you have when it comes to giving a helpful explanation for your faith. Maybe you've been in situations before and you're just like freaking out on the inside because you're afraid to give something helpful when asked or you have an opportunity to insert something. And I'd like you to talk about that. Okay, take a moment and talk about that at your tables. Okay, so we all have fears, all of us, including myself, but how can we lessen those fears and turn them more into excitement and anticipation of how God might use us to speak to someone who doesn't know Jesus about Jesus. So I want to give you five ways to provide a helpful explanation to an unbeliever about your faith when asked. And, and this comes directly out of Paul's example, which we're going to see this morning as we read through this text from his interaction with the, this group of unbelievers in the country of Athens, okay? In the city of Athens in Greece. So let me remind you of the context, okay? Paul is on his second missionary journey. He takes three main journeys of missions work. Here's a map of the Apostle Paul and the journey that he took. We last saw him in the book of Acts, in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, in Philippi, which is right over here, and he's going to make his way on down to Athens, down there. But you remember he experienced this miraculous jailbreak, we studied that last Sunday, or a couple Sundays ago. And then in Acts 17, he makes his way to Thessalonica, you can see that on the map, where this massive riot breaks out, you know, against him and Silas. You have to read that story. We can't cover everything in the book of Acts. I told you, or we'd be here for three years. <laughs> Uh, and, and then he makes his way to a place called Berea, and uh, great ministry happens. But I want you to notice what happens in Berea that actually moves into Athens. And so let's pick it up in verses, chapter 17, Acts 17, and let's look at verse 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him, you know, as soon as possible. So 
Here Paul would probably be attacked again, maybe stoned again, and they bring him to Athens. And he's left alone there. He's in this cultural center of Greece. Athens, it was home to the greatest philosophers in history, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus, the father of Epicureanism, and Zeno, the father of Stoicism, the two greatest philosophies that battled it out back then. Epicureans, they were materialists. They believed that life begins when atoms come together and, and life ends when atoms break apart. And this thing about the afterlife, there is no such thing as the afterlife. They were practical atheists who believed only in the material realm, nothing else. And then you have the Stoics, on the other hand, they pointed to things like, hey, there is a thing called love, right? We feel it. There's a thing called logic because we think that way and truth. These kind of things show that something exists apart from the material realm. The supernatural exists, they believe, because of those kind of things, but it's non-personal. And death, it, when you die, it reunites your mind with the impersonal whatever uh, that might be. The Stoics were pantheists, the divine is everywhere and in everything. And you have these two factions and many other philosophies that are battling back and forth endlessly back then, locked in this philosophical stalemate, along with dozens of other philosophies, and the pantheon of Greek religions and Greek gods like Zeus and Athena and Hermes and Poseidon, and the list goes on, and Athens was the center of it all. I mean, it's where it was all happening. And so what happens in this environment? Paul's left alone here, and what we see up close is something really masterful. Paul is the only Christian in the whole area. The gospel hasn't come to this area yet. Paul on his missionary journey is taking this trip all the way through Europe. Europe. The gospel is coming into Europe, and he finds himself in Athens. And as we study this, wow, we see these five very masterful uh, principles emerge from Paul's example. You know, and you're in situations. You're in an office complex or in a neighborhood or a, 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 a situation where you're the only Christian, it seems. How do, you, how do you interact in a way to be effective? And this is what we see with Paul. So let me give you these five steps. Number one, a helpful explanation. If you're going to share about your faith with someone who's an unbeliever, it comes, first of all, you might not expect this, but it comes, number one, from a caring heart. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, this is for Silas and Timothy to join him. He's alone. In Athens, he was greatly, what does it say? Distressed. To see that the city was full of idols. Now, why is Paul distressed? He is distressed because he cared. He cared for the people around him who were lost in idol worship. Thousands of people in Athens lost in false religious systems that permeated the culture. It was thought that every deity known to man could be worshipped in Athens. The streets were literally lined with idols and false deities, dazzling to the eye. It was said that it was easier to meet a god in Athens than a person. <laughs> and they were everywhere. Everything Paul saw was false religion. False religion, Paul knew, would send more people to hell than anything else. Hmm. 
Do you know how to care? I mean, that's where it starts. Do you know that half the world today, over 3 billion people, worship idols? Some of you think, well, no, that just couldn't be the case. Oh, yeah, idol worship is incredibly real. It's demonic, and it is by the billions taking place today. Many of you will go into many different restaurants, Indian food restaurants. You'll go to Thai restaurants. And there will be gods in there that you just think are cultural whatever. They're not. Those are gods that are being worshipped. And you will see food sacrificed to those idols. Literally, in, in virtually every one of these restaurants, you will see that. You just don't realize that these people are truly out of fear worshipping and sacrificing to gods by the thousands in the United States. Does it break your heart? Do you care? Do I care? You see, a helpful explanation always emerges from a caring heart. I don't know how to describe this, but sometimes I will be around Christians and I'll see them give an answer to a non-Christian. And it's obvious they're trying to make their point, but they really don't care about the non-Christian. It's like they want to preach a sermon and shove whatever, but they really don't have a heart for that person. Does that make sense? You know? If you can't speak the truth in love, I'm not sure you're ready to speak at all. And the only way you can speak the truth in love is if you love that person you're speaking to and you've cultivated that kind of heart. Uh, Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, that is, non-believers. Make the most of the opportunity you have. Let your conversation always be full of grace. Season with salt so you may know how to answer everyone. So we need to speak the truth, but we always need to speak the truth in love around a non-believer. A caring heart is always cultivated, watch this, by seeing people in their lostness. So when you see people at work, do you ever just take a moment? I encourage you to do this. Don't eat fast for one lunch and walk around your office complex and just look at people. Walk through your neighborhood and just look at your neighbors. Begin to feel what it's like to not know Jesus. Then you're preparing your heart to speak to them. But if these non-believers are just numbers to you or even have anti-loving you know, loving feelings toward them because they're just acting like they should act because they don't know Jesus, you've got to cultivate a caring heart and, you know, that Jesus was an example of that. Um, he only spoke the truth of love. Matthew 9, 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So when you see people, they're harassed and helpless. They're harassed by Satan. They belong to the enemy. They're unregenerate. And so you can't expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian until they are. And you realize they're in the hand of the enemy, being prepared for hell. And it, it, and it ought to break our hearts. And, it, and it's a broken heart. That is the first step uh, to really being prepared to share the gospel or any truth with a non-Christian. So a helpful explanation is not only about the right words, you need to have that, but primarily it's about the right hearts. People don't know how much you care, or people don't know, don't care how much you know 
until they know how much you care. I don't know if I, you know, maybe years and years ago, but I, I will seldom, I don't even know if I have in the last 20 years. I share the gospel a lot, I know you know that, which is one of my passions. But I don't think I've ever shared the gospel in the last 20 years with a non-Christian who I don't know knows that I love them first. I, I won't do it. I'm going to earn the right to speak. And I'll make sure I spend enough time with them to know I'll joke with them. I'm really easy to joke with and get along with, you know. And, and then finally, when I know, okay, then I can speak the truth. But a helpful explanation comes from a caring heart. Number two, that's the first thing we see with Paul. Second is this, a helpful explanation focuses in on the good news. Then you say, what do you mean by that? Well, look at Paul again. Look what he does. So he's got this caring heart, but then in verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. That's the Agora. Many of you have been with me, even too, uh, throughout Europe. And the Agora, the marketplace, this is where all the trading and the selling and the buying, this is where everyone hung out. And he's here in the, in the public, day by day, with those who happen to be there. He's talking to people, and he's alone. But a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these are the two factions, began to kind of debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? <laughs> Some of them non-Christian will look at you, you're a babbler, you know? Uh, others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching, what does it say? The what? The good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now watch this, as Paul spent time in Athens, it, this is easily overlooked. He is talking about the good news. Notice, he is not bringing bad news. If you have the reputation of bringing bad news to non-Christians, you've got to really reevaluate just what you are doing, because that is not Jesus. Jesus and Paul always brought the good news. You say, well, what do you mean by that? The good news is this. There is one God. There are not 20 gods. There is one God, and he loves you, even though you're a sinner. That is foundational to good news. Jesus died and he rose from the dead to save you from your sin and grant you everlasting life with this one God forever. That is the good news. This is the basic teaching about the good news. There is one God. That's good news. You know, two-thirds of the world doesn't know that message. They think there's, you know, India, they worship 33 million gods. That's over a billion people. Most of the world does not know the simple good news. There's one God, he loves you. The teaching that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that is great news. The teaching that there is a resurrection from the dead. Why is that great news? Because if there's no resurrection, there's no uh, victory over death, Satan, and sin. But it's great news that there's a Savior who died and rose from the dead. Paul, watch this, day in and day out, just kept on preaching the good news, not the bad news. Now, let me just say this, okay? Well, promise here. If you cultivate a caring heart for people, and you continue, wherever you go, to share the good news to people, it is just a matter of time until you get an invitation by those people to share with them a little bit more about what you believe. Why? Because, watch this, what they believe 
whatever it is, whether it be Hinduism, Islam, atheism, secular Hinduism, or humanism, it's not good news. You always have to remember this. And I'll remind myself about this all the time. Mark, you are the only one in this room, you are the only one in this country with good news. Everyone else has bad news, and watch this. They know it. I've been around thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people with other religions. They know they have bad news. Deep down in their hearts, you are the only one with good news. And if you keep teaching the good news, the things we just talked about, they know deep down you have the truth. Because your good news, the gospel is the only thing that corresponds to reality. Everything else is made up and they know it deep down. A belief system other than Christianity is bad news. People know it deep down, they're caught up in it, they just don't know how to escape it. And when you start speaking the basic truths of the gospel, it's good news, and it's like, it, it just brings freedom. It, they may not show it on the outside, but on the inside, it's, it's seeping in. And Paul, he just kept on sharing the basic tenets of the good news. What happened? They're listening to Paul share this good news, which they've never heard before, by the way. And they see a loving heart behind it, and they did what anyone does, what people do with me all the time. We want to hear more. We want to hear more. And look at verse 19 to 21. Then they took him, Paul, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. We'll talk about that in a second. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing. They had no TV back then. But talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Wow. That is very, very interesting. So they give Paul this opportunity. They go, hey, Paul, wow, we, we want to hear you more about this. And they bring him to the Areopagus. This is a court named on a hill in Athens. Let's go ahead and take you there, show you a picture. This is, this is it. This is where they brought the Apostle Paul. And the court is not there now, but it used to be. We're not sure if it was physical or just outside, but, but that's the area. Now, the same thing's going to happen to you. They're not going to say, hey, let's go to Greece and go hang out there the area. I guess you can tell me more. But they're going to say, let's go out to lunch. Can you? Yeah, this year, why don't you kind of, just like I called me just, just a little bit ago and he said, guess what, Mark? My company, they're not Christians, but they know I am. They invited me to speak at our, our company Christmas, you know, gathering to give a prayer. This is because he's a guy who cares for others. He just shares the good news. He's not offending people. This is why Billy Graham was invited to go all over the world, every country, because he just kept preaching the good news. It's good. People want to hear more of that truth. And if you're that way and I'm that way, we're going to be given these opportunities. Now, when that opportunity comes, what are you going to say? What am I going to say? Well, let's follow the Apostle Paul and see what he said. A helpful ex explanation, it comes from a caring heart, focuses on good news. You keep doing those two things, you're going to be given the opportunity by someone to go deeper. 
And thirdly, a helpful explanation provides an honest compliment to begin with. Now, everyone, let me give you a fact, everyone loves a compliment. When I saw Amy, I've been able to spend the last week with my granddaughter, and uh, just yesterday, she came up to me, she gave me a huge hug, and she said this, you're the greatest grandpa ever! <laughs> so guess what she got? Ice creamery last night. Bubblegum ice cream, her favorite. There isn't a one of us here who does not like a compliment. We all, it's human nature. And notice what Paul, and look, look at this twofold compliment that Paul gives these Athenians who he's just, he's just met. They've invited them to share about his faith. What will you do? Start with a compliment. And look what he says there in verse uh, 22. This is the basic. Then Paul stood up in the meeting and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He's saying, You guys are super religious. I'm religious. This is awesome. I like you people. You're my kind of people. Not content to go through life without thinking deeply about spiritual matters. You're religious. I'm religious. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Wow. Then he says in verse 23, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, all these idols, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. You guys are not only religious like I am, you care about all sorts of people. You don't want to offend anyone spiritually. You're sensitive to every religion and that's out there. I'm sensitive to people as well. I care about people with various views and backgrounds just like you guys. You're a super religious, caring type of people. I'm the same way. Wow. Now, they probably erected that altar to the unknown God out of fear because they didn't want to offend any deity that they didn't know the name of. They were super superstitious back then. But regardless, Paul was paying them a very honest twofold compliment about their spirituality. And why was he doing this? There's a reason. We don't have to even know question because Paul tells us throughout the epistles how he interacted with non-believers. Constantly. He was always trying to identify an area of common ground to build a relationship with people. Like 1 Corinthians 9 says this, to those not having the law, Paul said, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel. That means when I go to a group, I'm gonna identify with that group. I'm gonna build a relationship with that group, so they actually accept me, so that we can be on common ground somewhere. Now, let me give you just a principle to think about. If, if you can't relate to an unbeliever, it's going to be difficult for that unbeliever to think that they can relate to you and your God. Does that make sense? If you can't build some level of relationship with someone or a group of people, it's going to be very difficult for that someone or that group of people to trust you enough to believe in you and in your God. Why would they trust you since you're so unrelatable and in their view so weird? 
become, can become so weird that non-Christians just go, what the heck? This is what your God does to you? You can't even relate to me? You don't care for me enough to love me and like speak my language? And Paul's like, I do whatever I can to totally die to myself to become like that person to win them so we can relate and then I can bring the gospel to them. That's very powerful and very convicting, something that we have to think about deeply. And sometimes one of the biggest struggles we have as Christians, we're just hanging around Christians. We become in our holy huddle, and we're not around non-Christians. Also, you get around a non-Christian, you forget what it's like to be a non-Christian, and you're like, so different, they can't relate to you. You've got to dive to that and learn how to love non-Christians where they're at. I get along perfectly with people who are full-blown gay people. It doesn't matter where they're at, sexually or whatever. Now, I get along perfectly. I'm learning. But I love them. They're sinners in need of a savior. It doesn't matter where they're at. We're called to love them. I mean, if you're going to reach an unbeliever, it's going to come from a caring heart. It's going to care because, you know, you're, you're there focusing in on the good news and then you're providing an honest compliment to them. The greater you can build a relationship with an unbeliever, the greater the potential for them to trust you and to believe in you. Believe me, it's a challenge. It really is. So providing an honest compliment to people, especially on a spiritual compliment like what we see here with the Apostle Paul, wow, helps you become very relatable. And they're like, wow, I've never met anyone like this. Maybe I can relate to their God. Now, what does this look like in real life? I was thinking, okay, let me share with you the story. Um, <clears throat> a, few, a few Christmases ago, a little bit about me, okay? I'm going to take you on a journey. Uh, one of our boys, Josh, James, and Luke, lived in our home, <clears throat> growing up, teenagers, whatever. We had a basic, there was a lot of freedom, they could do a lot of things but they couldn't get a tattoo. I was like, when you move out, tat up. When you're in my, my house, my rules kind of thing, no tats. Well, so Christmas comes one year, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do something to boys, it'll shock them. We do, we do, we do some really strange gifts in our home. It's like, we have the strangest gift year, you know, at Christmas award that we give out every year, and you know. Anyway, so I went out and I got tattoos. I got three tattoos. And the nicknames for our boys, James, Josh, and Luke, are the Wash, the Yam, and the Rat. Okay? So I got the Wash, the Yam, and the Rat tattooed on me. I mean, huge tattoos. These were henna tattoos, but they didn't know it. So at Christmas, it comes time for us giving our weird, crazy gift of the year. And I'm like, check it out, boys. Boom! Busted off my shirt. I'm like, ah, on the back was Wash. And then I had the ham right here and the wrap right here. I was like all tatted up, you know? <laughs> and they're like, we can't believe it, Dad, you said. And now all this, and then later they found out they were hand tattoos. But I got the prize that year, okay? So, after you guys know, I traveled with the seventh January. So I'm off on a preaching tour through New Zealand and Thailand at very conservative churches. And I got these tattoos, and Tracy's like, we got a scrub brush, we're trying to get them off. We're not coming off. <laughs> I'm like, I, 
It's hot. I'm going, I can't cover up, man. I'm going to be all tatted up. I'm like, hey, damn, I'm washing the wrap. What's up with you? You know? I'm like, Trace, let's get these things off. And they're not coming off. I'm like, oh. So anyway, long story short, I'm in New Zealand. I'm walking through this airport, and I see this dude. This dude is so tatted out. I can't believe it. I'm looking, just staring at him, going, oh, my. I mean, the dude is scary looking, tattooed everywhere. I mean, on his face, everything. And as he's walking in the airport, I mean, mothers are grabbing their daughters and their kids, and the whole thing is spreading like this. Everyone's running. You have to know me. I'm just, I'm drawn to that kind of person. I'm like, I need to meet this guy. I need to have a conversation spiritually with this guy. So I'm like, okay, how am I going to relate to this guy? I got tattoos. <laughs> so I walked up and I go, dude, I love your tattoos. Can I show you my tattoos? And he goes, sure. You want to see a picture? Here it is. Here's Yetson, right there. Uh-huh. So I think that's, that's the, the yam I can. I'm not sure which one it is. But so we begin this conversation with Yetson. I mean, look at that dude. Guy's scary, right? I mean, look at him and everything. So I'm paying him this compliment, and I'm like, dude, I've never seen anyone that looks like you. I go, you are so committed, and I just got to hear your story. And we were in, had a tattoo, we're on, you know, he can relate to me. I go, tell me your story. And he starts telling me his story, man. He's like, man, I, you know, just uh, no dad, uh, different religions, searching. And I'm going to Myanmar, you know, I want to see if, you know, Buddhism is the answer, and I'm going to go to these temples and try to reach nirvana. Of course, I've been to Myanmar many times, and, and uh, so you say, what happened, Mark, in that story? Well, I'm going to share with you what happened in the next point to illustrate. I just want you to know, this is how you relate to a guy like that. You get on common ground. You let him know you love him. I told him I was a Christian. He knew it. I got on his level. Whose level of God calling you to get on? Where they just know you love them. Just love them. That's the foundation for being able to then ultimately share. Then the fourth thing is this. A helpful explanation answers an unbeliever's questions for the conversation laced with basic doctrine. Okay, I know that's tons, I mean, that's a big thought right there. But let me unpack it. It's not as complicated as what you might think. You're doing this all the time. But I want you to see the master Paul, and then we'll kind of back into this. Um, let me give you the one more explanation about human nature before we dive into this. Not only does every human being love to receive an honest compliment, watch this, they also crave. They are looking for getting their questions answered that they have been wrestling with for a long time, especially spiritual questions. Don't think that any non-Christian you know is not absolutely, totally, and completely interested in spiritual conversations. They are. All the time are they ever. So you pay someone a compliment, and then you want to answer their questions. If you meet someone like that, let me just put yourself in their shoes. If someone pays you a compliment and they answer the deepest questions you're asking, you've got a friend. Now, if they pay you a compliment and they preach their sermon at you, you don't have a friend. 
But if someone loves you, and they're maybe a different spiritual you know, orientation than you are, but they compliment you, and they start answering the questions that you are asking, and by the way, anytime you ever talk about the gospel, the good news, you are answering questions people are asking. Because people are created in the image of God, and God's message is what they are craving. They are asking those questions. So, Paul says, I see you're religious. You care for other people. But then notice what he says next. He kind of drops the hammer in verse 23. He, he kind of says, you know, this. He goes, hey, I find this altar, you know, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. By the way, unknown is the root word agnosticism from which we get without knowledge. So he's like, you guys don't know what you believe in, do you? I mean, he's kind of joking with them, but it's like caught their attention. They never had anyone come in with so much like confidence. And Paul says, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm going to proclaim to you what you just don't understand about these spiritual questions that you're asking. Wow. Paul is saying, let's be honest. You have a lot of questions about what you believe. You have a lot of doubts. You're not sure what you believe. You're confused. Am I right or am I right? You know, that's what he was saying. So let's clear up your confusion. I mean, you can talk that straight to people because you have the only truth that exists. Everything else is a lie. And people know it deep down. How about if I tell you what you're missing? Is that fair enough? That's what Paul said. You know, people, if they know you love them, they'll give you that opportunity. <coughs> hmm. You know, principle to think about, you know, just before we open our mouth with an answer to an unbeliever, are we sure we're answering the question they're asking? It takes a little bit of practice and skill. But the last thing you want someone doing who's a stranger is answering questions you're not asking. But if you're answering questions you are asking, you are so drawn to that stranger. It's like a divine appointment. A helpful explanation answers their questions. It doesn't preach your sermon. It answers someone's questions with a conversation that's laced with Bible doctrine. Now, notice how Paul does this, okay? And let's just read it. And uh, Paul's the master. He understands the culture. Look at verse 24. So he goes, okay, I'm going to explain what you guys are confused about. He says, the God. Now, notice he says the God, not God's. There's only one God. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Oh, this is a creator God. That was a new God. He's Lord of heaven and earth. This is a sovereign God. He does not live in temples built by hands. He transcends all this. He's teaching them doctrine. They're hearing this. Trust me, it's resonating with their heart, even though they're trying to understand it. There's something, as Paul is saying, that is making sense to them. And I see this in all the cultures I go to. All these false religious systems. The gospel speaks the truth into hearts and people lean in. Especially in all the countries we support where they've never heard the truth. They've only heard something false. And the contrast is so strong, they lean in to listen. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. I mean, he's self-sustaining God, right? Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out 
there are appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. His God is right here. Right here. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's our fulfillment. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, made in his image. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, made in his image, we should not think that the divine thing is like gold or silver or stone, like all these gods that you created, an image made by human design and skill. I mean, when you tell someone that for the first time, God isn't some idol that you're worshiping. They know deep down that's not the case, but they've never heard the truth. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. First time they heard the word repent. Everyone knows they're a sinner, and they need to repent. They know it. For he has said a day when he will judge the world with justice. Everyone knows judgment day is coming. Every non-Christian knows about there's a day they're going to need not. And Paul is saying this. It's resonating. The truth is, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. No one in all of Greece believed in the resurrection of the dead, and yet it did not stop Paul from preaching it. Wow. Now, there's so much there. My point is not to explain everything Paul said, but just to give you a principle that Paul just answered their questions with basic doctrine. He's planting seeds of basic doctrine and, and, and answering what these Athenians were most asking spiritually. It sounds difficult, but it's not. And any time you just have a conversation with an unbeliever and you're using the Bible, you are here all day. The Word of God is so powerful. And what the deception is, is we think everyone knows the Bible. They don't. We are in a post-Christian culture. And when you speak the Bible, when you speak truth, people are craving it. They will remember it. They will never forget it. It's how you and I are witness today. By answering questions we know people are asking. You say, what happened to Yetzin? Well, he reciprocated. After I listened to his story, he goes, Mark, will you tell me your story? I said, Yetzin, you know, I was on a, a journey just like you, looking for truth. And I was going here and there and everywhere. Finally, July 27, 1981, all alone in my bedroom, the living God revealed himself to me. The living God is Jesus Christ, one God. He came to this earth. He died on that cross. He rose from the grave, conquering sin and hell and Satan. And, and I just, in my own simplicity, asked Jesus there to be my Savior, Lord, and yet sin. He absolutely transformed my life. And this is why I'm here today. Simple gospel truth coming from a caring heart. Planting seeds into Yetzin's life. I said this to him. I looked at him and I go, Yetzin, you are so bold. That's why I came to you. Because look at how you have adorned yourself. I said this. I looked at him and I go, Yetzin, I believe you will become a courageous Christian and serve the living God, Jesus Christ, one day. Because you're going to go to Myanmar. You're going to go to all those temples. And you're going to try to meditate and you're going to find there's nothing there because there isn't anything there. I've been there before. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Yet, sin, you need Christ. One day you're going to find him. You're going to serve him. You're going to impact this world in a powerful way. Planting seeds. 
He knew I loved him. I didn't give his life to Jesus Christ right then. You become a hero of the faith every time you love people, you compliment them, and you speak the truth of God's word into their life. Trust me. Trust the Bible. It will speak deeply to them, and they will never, ever forget it. Let me, one more story. A couple, uh, just about a month ago, I'm going to the city with my sons, Josh, or James, and Luke. I guess I'm going to have to end with this. I can't believe it. It's 1030. Are you kidding me? Um, and, and, uh, and so I, I'm with this guy. We're in bars. We're going into the city. And this dude sits right, right behind me. And he's super loud and boisterous. And he's got a Russian accent. I'm like, I love Russian dudes. And I turn around and I go, you're from Russia. And he goes, how did you guess? You know? <laughs> and I go, where are you from in Russia? And he's like, oh, you would never know. I go, try it. He goes, I'm from Vladivostok. I go, I've been to Vladivostok. He's like, you've been to Vladivostok? Where's my, my vodka? What? No, no. He's like, he's like, why are you in, in Vladivostok? I said, I preached all throughout Vladivostok. He goes, why would you preach? I said, because I'm a preacher. <laughs> he said, what do you believe? I said, I believe in Jesus, that he came to this earth, he died, he rose from the grave, and that anyone who puts their faith in him will have eternal life. He goes, I do not believe that. I do not believe in Jesus. I don't believe anything you said. Now, whenever you get that answer, and, and by the way, we're in part, super loud guy, the entire car, everyone's listening. Everyone's leaning in. Now, a little trick of the trade. As soon as someone says something anti to you, what do you do? You freak out. No, no, no. This is all you say. Okay. I respect your view. Tell me what you believe. And I can just see him start to turn white. Everyone's listening. He's just put the preacher down, and now he has to preach. You want to see a guy squirm, I, you know, I mean, in all honesty, I didn't want to see him squirm, but I've seen this dozens and dozens of times. Most non-Christians have never been asked what they believe, and they've never been asked to articulate it publicly. And you will see someone start to talk, and absolutely, they will begin to sweat, and they'll be, begin, once they articulate their faith, they'll realize, this is ridiculous what I believe. Because there's only one truth. So he goes, okay, you want to know what I believe? I said, yeah, we're all here listening. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be loud. If you're loud at me, I'm going to be loud back. And so I put him on the spot. I already articulated what I believe. He goes, well, you're going to find this hard to believe. I find that I will. Because I believe in aliens. <laughs> I believe there's a big conspiracy. And they came here. They came and colonized. And he's talking this through. And I mean, he gets quieter and quieter, and everyone's leaving in more and more, because it's so foolish. And so, and finally, he just barely gets through it. And I said, I have one more question for you. How has what you believe helped you? He goes, it hasn't helped me at all. <laughs> he goes, actually, I don't know what I believe. Actually, what I believe sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> And then I said, when you look at me, what do you see? He says, I see a guy that has joy and love 
I said, when you look at those two boys over there, those are my two boys, James and Luke, what do you see? Because I see joy. I see life. I goes, because believing in Jesus does something for you big time. Then I said, do you think there's a reason why God had you sit back here, why I went to Vladivostok, you're born in Vladivostok, and we're talking right now? Do you think God has been trying to get your attention and he wants to transform your life? And all of a sudden he looked up and he goes, I'm in San Francisco! I'm supposed to go to Concord! And he, he came with us all the way to San Francisco! And he literally ran out the door on a fruit bale accident to get on the other thing, and that was the last time I saw him again. Okay, I, I really have no idea why it's... The last thing is a helpful explanation gives, it yields various responses. If you look at verse 32 to 34, you see some people sneered at Paul, others they just believe, others were like, we'll give, we want to give you another hearing. And uh, let's pray, guys. <laughs> Lord, you said what you wanted to say this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you revealed yourself to us. And what a privilege we have. It's a challenge, God. It's a challenge for me, a challenge for all of us. But it's so exciting at the same time to just kind of step out of faith and, and just, you know, cultivate a caring heart and just tell the good news to people and compliment them and try to answer the questions they're asking with the basic good news of your teaching. It's going to get various responses, Lord, but I pray that somehow you use all of this to just equip us more with your good news, to be your messengers. Even this week, God, in this season, Lord, I pray that you would just fill us to be like you, Jesus, to be like the Apostle Paul, to be heroes of the faith in our own environment, whether it's in our own marriage, our family situations, work, wherever. Thank you that you're there for that. We love you. All God's people said.